0: and welcome to IIEA Insights with me, Dan O'Brien. For the first time in three and a half years since this series started, we're coming to you today from the Institute's HQ in central Dublin. That's largely because our guest today, who's normally resident in Washington DC, has kindly agreed to come in person to the Institute for this discussion. Fiona Hill is one of the world's leading foreign policy experts and advisors. With deep expertise on Russia, she's held a range of roles related to European security, transatlantic affairs, and US foreign policy, most famously perhaps as an advisor to President Donald Trump between 2017 and 2019. We are going to discuss two main issues today. One is the war in Ukraine and the future of European security more widely. And the other is what the implications will be for the world if there is a change of the US president in January 2025. Fiona, welcome back to the Institute. It's a pleasure to have you. Um, as I mentioned in the intro, I'd like to stick with two broad issues. Uh, one is the war in Ukraine. And maybe you start with Russia. I, I know you spent a number of months in Berlin recently. And elsewhere, you mentioned that even Russians who live in exile in Germany, that you've spoken to uh, don't want Russia to lose the war. I'm wondering from a bottom-up perspective um, to what extent is there pressure on the regime in Moscow to end the war or is there broad support? Is 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 public opinion willing to endure possibly a, a very long conflict?
1: Well it's a really complicated situation because you know let's be frank it's very hard to get Um, uh, an in-depth look into Russian public opinion at the moment. I mean, we've got to remember that um, uh, the repressive apparatus of the Kremlin um, is uh, pretty extreme at the moment. Um, So many people who have made just the mildest uh, protests against the war, like most recently um, a performance artist who put five small stickers on some um, supermarket uh, price tags, you know, getting basically a seven-year um, sentence uh, in jail or, you know, obviously at the other end, people like Vladimir Karamoza and uh, Alexei Navalny, of course, you know, being, you know, major uh, critics of uh, Putin, uh, you know, getting 30-plus-year uh, sentences, The basically the the bar for or the threshold uh, for making your true feelings felt is pretty high. Now, that doesn't mean to say that you can't get some kind of gauge of uh, popular opinion, and uh, many polling organizations in Russia, including the Lovada Group, uh, which used to be the sort of gold standard of Russian polling, are still making attempts at that, but they're seeing kind of, you know, a lot of complexity in that polling. There's a lot of kind of passive support for the war, and so, in fact, if it's not affecting me and I don't have to think about it, then I'm not going to actually do anything about it, again, because... There is that, uh, such a bar for protest or uh, any kind of uh, criticism. Uh, but you know, then you've got to ask yourself, how are you not being confronted with uh, the, the facts of the war? And this is where you know, things get somewhat interesting uh, from an analytical point of view. Putin and the Kremlin are doing their utmost beyond the, the mobilization and, you know, obviously sending people to the front to give the other uh, uh, Russia, rest of the Russian population a kind of sense that they are not being affected by this war at all. So you hear a lot of stories from Moscow and St. Petersburg and you know, basically the big cities that life is as it was before, in fact, people are living their best lives, they're living large, they're going to restaurants, they're going to the theatre, that they're not seeing any visible signs of the war. That's why the Ukrainians, in many respects, have been trying to put these uh, drone attacks uh, forward, at least to remind Russians that there is a war going on, you know, of course, which could have a backlash as well, because then that might uh, increase support for the war, you know, the fact that they're being attacked by okay. Ukrainians. So there's kind of a fine line there. But the important point is that Putin's basically telling... You know, the vast majority of Russians, you're not impacted by this. There's a lot of money circulating, you know, around uh, the system, despite the war economy for now. Oligarchs, you know, because of sanctions in Europe and the United States and elsewhere, business people are bringing their money back uh, to Russia. They're being pushed to invest in Russia. They're pushing for more domestic tourism, you know, to kind of increase sort of consumer demand and, you know, encouraging people to staycation, to, you know, vacation at home and not go to Europe or Egypt or anywhere else and, frankly, given, you know, what's happening elsewhere in the world, that's less attractive at the moment, although there are still a lot of countries like Mexico or Thailand, you know, and others, for example, where Russians can go on vacation, uh, you know, basically without visa or without any, you know, kind of uh, risk of uh, harassment. Uh, outside of the big uh, cities, there is um, a lot more money uh, basically moving around because of people going to the front. So this is a kind of an irony of the situation, is poorer uh, Russians, Russians from remote regions, Russian uh, Russians, citizens from non-Russian ethnic groups are predominantly uh, being pushed into the military, not just Prisoners and you know other uh, you know groups that we keep hearing about that again literally being press ganged into the wall and they're being paid for this. You know you basically Russia has moved not just uh, to conscription but to a, a sort of contract basis. People being encouraged to sign up for the military and getting you know substantial sums of money, money that wouldn't otherwise be generated in these regions. So you go out to these remote uh, regions and there's lots of reports now of a lot of money circulating because of people being at the front, people getting compensation uh, not just for fighting there, but also death compensation to families. And for now, that has actually, you know, kept the lid on any kind of backlash. There is backlash. You also start to see protests, particularly from, you know, the women of families right, uh, who yeah. are, you know, kind of still at the front and they've had no time off. You know, basically, Russians have not been, you know, sent back from the front. They're not being given any, you know, R and R time. Uh, and returning to their to their families, the uh, term of uh, their uh, fighting at the front is, keeps being on extended You know, so there's all these kind of ambiguities in the whole situation. It's really hard to sort of disentangle what do people really think. But getting back, you know, to how you framed this when we began, yes, I was uh, in in Berlin uh, for several months uh, this year, and also travelling, you know, more broadly, other places. There's a lot of Russians in exile. People who were avoiding. Uh, the war, uh, they moved um, because they were opposed to the war or, you know, basically people who were critics of the Kremlin. And you're getting a lot from a lot of them, this war was a mistake. Uh, the war should be stopped, but they don't want Russia to lose. And this was something that came out around the uh, Prigozhin um, events, right. uh, the putsch uh, by Prigozhin, the insurgency, Yevgeny uh, Prigozhin, and of course the former head of the, the Wagner group, him also basically saying this war was a huge mistake. It's being mishandled by the military, who didn't say Putin and the Kremlin. This war must not be lost. We must not lose this war. Huge mistake, but we mustn't lose it. And there's already a lot of resistance to the idea that Russia should pay for anything as a result of the war if the war's ended. Mm. We, we can tell again from the polls, war was a mistake. We'd like the war to end. Lots of polling is showing that there'd be open, openness to negotiations with the Ukraine, but only really to end the war on Russia's terms. Nobody wants to give back territories that Russia has taken uh, since 2014, obviously not Crimea or Donbass, and and not the territories that have been taken uh, since uh, uh, 2022 either. And there's no desire whatsoever to pay any kind of reparations for the end of the war. So that becomes the difficulty here. There's not that much active support for the war, but there's also certainly no active interest and having Russia resolve the war on anything other than its terms. Okay,
0: so like one of the things certainly as an economist, and I think you know everybody in the economics business has expected a huge recession in Russia once the war started. Uh, clearly, as you say, you know that that you know hasn't happened, and in, in many ways, materially, people are living good lives. One aspect of that raises even further questions about the efficacy of sanctions. You know, Iran, Venezuela. You know how. From, from uh, as you see it, does does this mean that either sanctions are not are not effective, or that they're too easily bypassed by private operators? Huge increase in trade from even Western Europe into neighbouring countries, which then seems to be going under Russia. So, is is there an issue about the efficacy of sanctions, or about how how strictly they're enforced by the countries that are they're imposing them?
1: Well, I think it's a mixture of all of these things. And, you know, as an economist, you know, you're well aware, like most people should be aware that sanctions are not uh, are basically a, a silver bullet here. Yeah. They're not the uh, response. Uh, I mean, they are, they're a response, but they're not the, basically the solution uh, to um, every problem. We tend to immediately turn to sanctions because we kind of know how to do it but they're a part of a toolkit. I mean, there's all kinds of other things that we should be doing at the same time as well. And we know that they can have, you know, some impact if they're carefully honed and it's very kind of clear in terms of kind of cause and effect. But we tend to take a kind of a blanket approach towards it. Now, in the initial stages um, of the conflict, they did have a big impact. There was a shock to the Russian system. You do see, you know, drop-off in um, in GDP uh, growth. And you um, then, you know, force an adaptation which is exactly what we've seen in the Russian case. Russia is not isolated economically. You know, you were mentioning this again about sort of enforcement. Not everybody uh, signed on to uh, sanctions. You've seen a shift in trade, uh, and trade patterns, uh, with Russia you know, relying on other countries to, to get uh, critical parts, uh, particularly for equipment for the military. You know, they're still getting, actually, you know, US and other European parts, but they're getting them through a series of in, in, intermediaries. It's kind of basically like water. You deny one channel, yep. and it kind of you know, basically uh, moves to another. But Russia has been hurt, and its economy has been hurt, by the impact of sanctions and other steps. Germany... Uh, basically, moving away from Russian gas under duress, of course. I mean, the Russians also, you know, cut off the gas, thinking that Germany would immediately uh, change course. Uh, that actually has had a huge impact. Russia is now desperate to find other buyers for its gas, which isn't so easy. Uh, LNG, uh, liquefied natural gas. Um, you know, Russia doesn't have other markets. You know, the question is, are they flaring it? You know, they don't have this, you know, opportunities to store the gas. Uh, in you know, the, kind of the, the ways that they would obviously hope to have. They, have, they weren't able to manipulate the gas markets you know, in the way that um, you know, they had hoped. They thought that the Germans, for example, wouldn't go down the path of going literally cold turkey on Russian gas. Oil, of course, there's been limits to you know, how much we can uh, restrict uh, Russian oil sales because of the broader impact this would have on global oil markets, and so, you know, we'd have to opt for a price cap, which means that Russian oil is still sold and there's still revenues going to the state. But, you know, we haven't really inspected the long-term effects as well as the sort of medium-term effects of basically cutting off uh, uh, Russia's gas exports, which is effectively, you know, been done. And, I, and what I would argue is, you know, the, the effects that you see from sanctions are really long-term. You know, part of the problem that we have is we won't be able to see at this uh, juncture what impacts they're kind of basically having on the Russian economy? Russia is also now in a war economy; it's basically adapted its whole system to deal in a wartime scenario, which the rest of you know Europe and the rest of the world is not. And of course, it's kind of making new trading partners. Uh, import substitution pushing you know kind of more emphasis on the domestic market russia's going to look very different you know at the end of uh, this war than you know it did before, but it is affecting russia 's long term innovative capacity and russia 's long term growth but it 's just that we're obviously not seeing Russia um, as a result of uh, the sanctions change in the ways that we want to All do right. and part of that is just the thinking about sanctions. They can be a punishment, and they are a punishment often. They can uh, be hard hitting, but they're not always likely to change behaviour if the country prioritises, you know, the, the goals that it's uh, 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 trying to achieve way beyond, you know, economic or other issues. And we see now that Russia's prioritised the pursuit of this war in Ukraine far more than it prioritised its trade and economic links with Europe.
0: And are there any? You hinted at maybe different ways of doing sanctions. Is there anything particular that you'd advocate? That, that would be in the shorter term. As you mentioned, some of these things may have big long, uh, long-term effects. I think you'd advocate um, those countries that oppose uh, R- Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Is there anything that you would advocate that they do in terms of their sanctions packages?
1: Well, part of uh, the issue is, is really trying to figure out how to engage with Russia in a way that Russia knows that there's going to be no bouncing back to um, the trade as it was before. Um, and you know, trying to see if one can change the incentive structure. But it's also making it very clear to countries that continue to uh, trade with India, uh, with, with Russia like India and like China, um, you know, about how that will actually affect uh, other ongoing you know, trade, economic and political relationships of those countries as well, to make it very clear that um, what's happening in Ukraine is vital for European security in particular. It's not just the United States. And, you know, the United States uh, trade relations with Russia, as we know, were pretty minimal. Uh, And, I mean, Russia's already, you know, factored out, you know, it's kind of, you know, relationships, economic relationships with the US. But it's really trying to get uh, across to other major trading partners that what Russia is doing in Ukraine is affecting, you know, the way that, you know european countries think about their relationships over the longer term i mean countries like india you know do understand that but of course you know they're only too keen to be able to cash in on you know cheaper russian oil and not gas obviously it's kind of it's pretty hard to do but you know kind of they can be persuaded to be very careful about the nature of the trade you know with russia you've seen uh, obviously japan and South Korea really changed right. you know their perspectives as a result of this, and look China could be persuaded as well you know to be more careful about and maybe this is one of the reasons that china 's backpedalling on you know more Russian gas and oil uh, relationships and uh, uh, deals maybe it 's also because they're trying to push a hard bargain of course right. because you know the cheaper the better from china 's perspective, but also because it could jeopardize their long term you know, trade and economic relationships with uh, with Europe, which are pretty important. I think you know what European countries in particular are going to have to do is really look at the their major trading partners and seeing how they can get across the point that, look, it's one thing, but trading uh, with Russia, but you know helping Russia basically you know beef up its um, military uh, capabilities to pulverize Ukraine. That's not something that we're going to be, you know, treating kindly over the longer term.
0: And on that very topic, it's, I saw an estimate recently that ammunition production in Russia is seven times that of, of the West. Now, the columnist who wrote that didn't source it, so I don't can't say for certain that's that's accurate. Or probably nobody can. But it does seem, as you mentioned, that the Russians have reoriented their economy on a war footing, whereas the Western world despite getting involved in subsidies for electric vehicles and all sorts of things, there doesn't seem to be the same increase in military capacity and particularly ammunition, even though that would seem to be in countries' direct interests just to keep their own supplies up. Um, Is that something that 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 simple military production capacity, is that something that could potentially uh, determine the outcome of this war in, in the short and medium term, without yeah. even going into whether Western uh, countries course, will of continue to because,
1: I mean, what is Russia doing? It's trying to basically pummel the Ukraine on a daily basis. It's using an enormous amount of ammunition. And, you know, we um, in the West, you know, at large, including the United States, never envisaged a full-on World War I, World War II type, you know, basically artillery war. Uh, we were all preparing for special operations, you know, insurgencies, yep. you know, kind of different kinds of operations, cyber space, you know, kind of you name it. I mean, drones. I mean, obviously, got a 21st century um, aspect uh, to all of this. The cyber and information war, uh, information war in particular, is you know kind of at, certainly at, a, at very high levels. But nobody was anticipating that we were back to the past in terms of trench warfare and uh, exchanges of of artillery fire. And that's, you know, exactly where we are. And yes, absolutely, Russia is now prioritising that. That's the nature of the war that Russia is choosing to fight and certainly inflicting on Ukraine. And it's, you know, kind of the war that Ukraine is um, being forced to fight. Now, there's another aspect of this as well. The uh, justification for the war, and this gets back to the first discussion that we had about Russian popular opinion, has really shifted Russia's gone from, you know, basically talking about the denazification of Ukraine to now, you know, talking about dealing, you know, with an existential fight like it did against the Nazis in World War II as a kind of a, a fight to the finish with the West. So we may not be thinking about ourselves being engaged in a full-on war. This is, you know, Russia's war with Ukraine or Ukraine's war with Russia. But Russia is already, uh, you know, telling the world. Uh, not just the Kremlin and Putin telling their population that is a war with the West. Now, you know, maybe in Europe that might think what's well, a war with the United States, but this is a war in Europe, uh, on uh, the, the the third you know largest you know war in a hundred years on European soil, a war for uh, the future of European security, the future configuration of Europe, a war that's trying to push uh, a change in European borders, uh, you know, basically a total rupture with everything that uh, Europe has tried to put in place since World War II, where there was no more return to forcible uh, changes of border or uh, to major land wars, and that's kind of exactly where we are right now. So, you know, whether we like it or not, uh, we, you know, writ large in in, in Europe and in in the United States, in the West, you know, find ourselves in the major... uh, in the, the midst of a major war. And Russia is... You know has turned that into a war that is now dependent on the production of ammunition, so you know one aspect beyond sanctions and beyond diplomacy all the beyond all the pressure that we 're trying to you know apply here is going to be addressing the fact that on the battlefield this is a war of attrition in ammunition you know based on artillery exchanges
0: and in terms of your assessment of Who can endure that most? Have you changed your sort of analysis of that based on on, on what's happened over the past 18 months? Is Russia more effective than you might have thought 18 months and the West less effective uh, in in terms of gearing itself up for this sort of long Long conflict, you know, because certainly, again, as an economist, you know, the democratic Europe and, and the United States, you know, their economies are 20 times the size of, of Russia's. It just seems hugely in most wars, you know, basic capacity, as in the Second World War, in the United States, that basic economic capacity is a major determinant of the outcomes of war. Of wars, it's not the only one, but when when you have sort of such a disparity, one, one would think that it would show up more. In, in the outcomes, but it, it doesn't seem to be. So would would you, based on the past 18 months, be less pessimistic, more pessimistic about uh, Ukraine's capacity to to endure this and get some sort of uh, outcome that it wouldn't be, that would not be absolutely appalling? Or, you know? Yeah,
1: would, I mean, really, we're at a really important inflection point right now with us speaking here, because you know, we all know people are sort of questioning you know, what happens next and the question absolutely whether you know Ukraine should start negotiating something or not. And first of all I think what we have to recognise is it's an absolute miracle that Ukraine is still here in terms of as a country and has fought the Russians to this current standstill. You know, people keep talking about stalemate, you know, et cetera, et cetera But Ukraine fought off a Russian invasion and have fought them to such a point that Russia's also bogged down here. You know, Russia can't go on the offensive and is basically engaged in you know, a war of attrition. So that actually in itself is a remarkable place to be in because if Ukraine hadn't fought back in those first two weeks, Ukraine would have been overrun. I mean, not obviously with the kind of levels of you know, uh, casualties that we're seeing, but the country would have basically been right back there in Russia's orbit, Zelensky would no doubt not be in place. There'd be, you know, Russian proxy puppet government, uh, and we'd be in, a, you know, a very difficult, different place uh, from where we are now. Now, of course, a lot of people said yes, but there would be hundreds of thousands of people, you know, not killed on, you know, on, on either side. You know, but if you're thinking about a Ukraine that was fighting for its independence, fighting for its still right to exist as as Ukraine, uh, this is actually a remarkable feat. The Ukrainians have fought to a very different position from where they would have been in the first couple of weeks. Now, the problem is, going further, the Russians, having recognised this, have gone from this being a special military operation, an intervention in which they thought that, you know, basically Ukraine would capitulate, uh, to now recognising that Ukraine is going to be very difficult to shift. And if they want to keep the territory that they've already taken and, you know, stop Ukraine from taking any more, they've got to be, you know, full on in terms of focus on the war effort. So Russia's got, as I said before, and as you've also said, a war economy now. Russia's geared everything towards making sure that it can keep the land that it's taken. If it can't get all of Ukraine now, militarily, it's going to keep what it's got, and then, you know, maybe trying to apply political pressure or hope that, you know, kind of basically Ukrainian resolve politically and diplomatically, as well as militarily, um, basically fades as it becomes much more difficult for Ukraine to move into kind of basically the next phase. So this is where this does become decisive because Russia is literally throwing everything that it can get at this, deals with Iran for making drones, getting more ammunition from North Korea, ramping up its own you know war production. So we have to recognise here what Russia is doing because there's a lot of concerns now from military experts who look at this that Ukraine has done such a remarkable job of getting to this point but that this next phase is going to be, you know, extraordinarily difficult. So it has to be also a combination of how we, you know, basically maintain Ukraine's strength um, on the battlefield so that it doesn't then get outweighed by Russia. Because what Russia's hoping is to force Ukraine's surrender and for Russia to dictate the terms of surrender, uh, you know, on the battlefield, but then, you know, as political and diplomatic and moral and you know, all the rest of it, economic support for Ukraine fades as well, to then, you know, be able to to push further. I mean, I think the Russian goal remains as it was at the very beginning, which is a, a, a Ukraine that is neutral and ultimately defenseless against, you know, any kind of Russia economic, political, and other pressure. I mean, part of the, you know, debate about this is, you know, did Russia want to take over all of Ukrainian territory, the military force that they sent in, um, at the very beginning, obviously, was not sufficient to be an occupation force, but Russia thought it wouldn't have to do that. They Russia just thought forced, they could decapitate the regime. They could just the decapitate and, the yeah. regime, and then you know, they'd basically have Ukraine where they wanted it, which would be part of a larger, you know, Slavic union. It wasn't that they were trying to reconstitute the Soviet Union or even, you know, the, the Russian Empire, you know, writ large. They were trying to bring Ukraine. Um, along with Belarus, which is already there in a the Union Treaty, back into Russia's sphere. And then they wanted to be able to you know, basically menace other uh, neighboring countries, Moldova, Kazakhstan and others, making sure that none of them had any other options other than you know, being in a closer and closer association um, on security, economic and political fronts with Russia. They didn't want anybody going anywhere.
0: Just on decisive things, a decisive moment, the, the, the nuclear option for, for Moscow, is that completely, one doesn't hear much discussion about it, it was sort of hinted at at one time, do, do you think that's a you know, very low probability uh, option, uh, outcome for, for this war, that Russia would resort to either battlefield uh, weapon deployment or something bigger?
1: It remains a low uh, possibility while you have a lot of political pressure on Russia. Um, not to cross the nuclear threshold, so there was a real risk um, when the Russian military was bogged down um, in Kherson province, um, across the Dnipro River from the positions in which they're located now. Uh, you know, the threat to use a battlefield uh, nuclear weapon seemed, you know, pretty real at that point. But what you immediately got was a response from the United States, from China, from India. You know, which remember the nuclear. Uh, arena has changed dramatically since the cold war it's and also i mean you know since the end of world war II when you had the five un um, permanent members of the security council were the only five uh, nuclear powers in you know, 1945 china the uk france you know and the united states and the soviet union you've now got a whole proliferation of uh, nuclear powers and others who want to get nuclear uh, weapons out there not just you know civilian nuclear power so, you know, the game has changed completely, and China, India, Pakistan, you know, other countries don't want to necessarily, you know, at all um, see further proliferation, but they don't um, uh, want, certainly don't want to see Russia cross that nuclear threshold. You saw Japan push back when, nuclear, when the nuclear, you know, solution to World War II was raised by Russia, Putin actually saying, well, there was a case in history, you know, alluding Obviously, to Hiroshima and Nagasaki, where there was the successful, you know, kind of uh, conclusion of a war from the use of nuclear weapons, there was immediate backlash to that, obviously in Japan and elsewhere, where we've, you know, made it very clear that it was just so abominable the uh, the results of using a nuclear weapon in Hiroshima and Nagasaki that people said never again, and so there was so much pressure, you know, put on Russia at that point not to go down the nuclear path that that I think has been the constraint and restraint on Russia, but. We can see that Putin continues to try to play with it psychologically, uh, the fear factor, and also play with it rhetorically you know, constantly whenever he kind of thinks that the uh, people's minds have not been uh, uh, cleared enough of you know kind of uh, uh, the, the, uh, the, 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 the kind of the or rather you know people have forgotten you know the the fears or the you know the, the deterrent impact of uh, nuclear weapons he immediately you know, has somebody go out there and talk about uh, the potential use of nuclear weapons and talks about testing nuclear weapons and uh, you know, basically tries to bring everybody back to the war scares of the 80s or the Cuban Missile Crisis because you know, Putin's uh, view is that as a nuclear power, he ought to be able to you know, exert uh, as much power and influence as, as he wants to. And, of course, that is a, a significant dimension of this war as well, which, again, feeds into European security. Ukraine gave up a nuclear arsenal that it inherited from the Soviet Union, was guaranteed the the sanctity of its territorial integrity and its uh, sovereignty and independence. And and, they, and again, having given up those nuclear weapons, it gets attacked by a nuclear weapons state. I mean, the messaging there is pretty bad you know, from any perspective. So we have to keep up the pressure uh, on Russia talking about the impermissibility of the use of uh, nuclear weapons. And if we don't keep that up, then that risk increases again.
0: Okay. In in terms of just bringing this section closer to conclusion, the, the the role of Putin himself, if we were to wake up tomorrow morning with the news that he was no longer president, either because he had simply dropped dead or there had been a, some sort of ouster, how do you think that would change the dynamic? Um,
1: well, in part, it would uh, depend on um, who replaces him or who steps in. If it's somebody you know, from the harder line, you know, security circles around him, then, you know, we're kind of in a... A similar in a situation to where we, we you know were before, but the kind of questions whether they would get traction, you know, more broadly in the elite. I mean, we've seen all kinds of things happen in Russian history and Soviet history as well in the history of other countries. You know, places like Cuba, for example, you went from one Castro to the next, and then a oh. protege. So you didn't get a lot of major change in Venezuela. You went from Chavez to Maduro, and you know, not a lot of uh, change. But you know, throughout Russian history, we've had actually some pretty dramatic change. Uh, from changes of leadership. If you got, you know, a more technocratic government in place, so Mr. mashustin who's the prime minister, I mean, technically he would step in as acting president. And right. If you've got kind of, you know, then, you know, a push for a technocratic government, it might well then lead to, you know, a, a major opening to end the war. But you're also getting back to, you know, what we were talking about in polling before. You're not seeing any desire on the part of Russians to... Basically resolve the war, other than keeping the territory, and certainly not in terms of paying for the reconstruction of Ukraine. So we still have a yeah. dilemma.
0: And I suppose my question could have been better framed in that in in terms of elite opinion in uh, in Russia, is is there more of a desire to end the war? Is this one leader has put his his entire you know. Has gambled on this. Um, He can't pull back. If he wasn't around, is there more of a desire amongst the elite in Russia, or is the elite fragmented between hardliners and softliners? You know, what's your? Well, there's certainly
1: a a very strong hardline uh, group, Um, maybe not so numerous, but that want to see the war pursued even harder. I mean, that they're now all in, and you know, we've actually seen some constraints on Putin, you know, from people in this kind of national, uh, nationalist, and you know, kind of hard right. Uh, environments, the people who um, have fought actually in some of the covert parts of uh, the war, uh, for them to be harder on Ukraine, and there'll be a lot of people implicated in that who would be kind of exposed and perhaps you know not wanting to, you know, end the war because they might be considered as war criminals. You know, Putin right. could be you know pulled against the ICC. You know, what about them as well? Now, of course, there's a lot of effort to deflect. You know, away to the Middle East now because of you know post. Uh, October 7th and the Hamas attack on Israel and then Israel's you know, response is a great effort now on the part of Putin and the Kremlin to put all focus over there so that there's no longer you know, the, a, a international scrutiny on you know, what, what uh, you, Russia is doing in Ukraine and to you know, point the finger at Israel and what they're doing in Gaza, you know, et etc. to you know, kind of move and deflect that attention away because there'll be a lot of people in Russia worried that in fact at some point there'll be a reckoning you know about what they've done and what they've presided over and and look I think that also holds for a lot of the technocrats or the others who would you know kind of want to see the war ended the question would be then will there be reparations will there be consequences for this and when you you know talk to a lot of Russians in exile they don't want to see that either they don't want to be treated like germany you know after world war 2 there's a you know great fear of you know Russia having been cancelled you know this backlash against you know russian culture and you know russians abroad um, you know that's often, in many respects, short-sighted as well. It's understandable why it's happening, but you know there's, there there there's, there wants to be you know from their point they want to know that there's some path backwards for uh, for Russia. So it's going to be really difficult, you know, to figure out um, you know if Putin disappears tomorrow and there's a technocratic government about where we're going to go from okay. there. Yeah. Because, you know, we all know that nobody wants to have to pay. I mean, we're having all these debates in, you know, Western societies about reparations from colonial period or who pays for climate change. You know, how, how do you get, you know, debt relief for, um, you know, countries that got saddled with these heavy debt burdens. You know, there's a, there's a huge, you know, with the North-South rift about who pays for what and, you know, who is responsible for what. We're going to be, you know, uh, facing that at the end of, you know, basically, the, the end of this conflict. There's going to be a lot of reckoning you know, to be done. It's not going to be straightforward in um, how that's uh, resolved. We can say what should be done and what will be done you know, will often be two different things.
0: And you, 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 you mentioned resolve in Western European countries. I think nearly everyone I've spoken to in sort of political circles in Europe has been, was surprised at the Strength of the reaction and how cohesive Europe managed to be around the time of the invasion, Um, people surprised themselves, I think, to some extent. But over time, you know, there is a huge cost to this uh, for for European countries. Do you see in Western Europe a a fraying of uh, of the willingness to support this as as the war drags on?
1: Um, Yes, I do. I mean, there's still considerable support coming from European uh, countries, but you know, there are kinds of limits uh, to the demands that can be made, you know, domestically because there's a lot of trade-offs. And, you know, while most Europeans don't want to accept that there's a wartime scenario going on and that the war in Ukraine, you know, that they're responsible, you know, in some ways for uh, addressing this as well, you're going to keep on having this uh, fraying levels of support because people don't want to pay, you know, for this. Of course there are costs. I mean, there's been costs, you know, to Germany... From I mean, really, their remarkable ability to uh, you know, stop using uh, Russian gas. I mean, it's, it's led to increase in um, energy prices. It didn't des- destroy the German economy. It was was thought there were you know, ways of um, you know, basically addressing this and minimizing you know, the pain. But there's still, nonetheless, you know, costs and there's been inflation of uh, all kinds of fuel and food costs. You know, direct you know, results of, of uh, the war. But there's also the fact that we we still have all these persistent inequalities. Uh, you know within our own um, societies it need to be addressed there 's a lot of demands uh, on governments to address a whole host of issues uh, related to regional inequalities, climate change, um, deficiencies in our own social and welfare systems, educational systems you know you have north south divides in every uh, country, not just a kind of a global north south uh, divide that have to contend with it were the rest of the world is asking the you know the West to pay compensation for ruining the environment or you know for the various kind of you know sins of uh, uh, of the past inside of our own countries. A lot of demands for you know addressing uh, domestic uh, concerns. And you know you think about um, you know, Germany for example. They've recently had uh, the constitutional court ruling that right. they can't spend more money. Uh, than is allocated, and they've already made these major allocations for Ukraine, major allocations you know, for uh, industrial transition with, uh, away from coal, for example, dealing with um, uh, compensation for shifting away from Russian gas and you know, higher prices, etc. It becomes you know, a real burden, uh, and, and again, you know, Europeans don't want to sort of admit to themselves that they're at war. This is somebody else's war. This is Russia's war. It's the United States has to be responsible for it. This is Ukraine's war. And you know, we, we, you know, there's a lot of now uh, demand for ending this war or finding an end to this war to make it stop so things can go back as they were before. But unfortunately, things are not going to go back to as they were before. That whole you know, pre-war you know, uh, situation was in, in, in any case very shaky and, you know, not what it seems. But do
0: you think that's, you know, if, if we could even take out the fiscal and economic side for Western Europe, if that wasn't a, a major factor in a cost, do you think the threat perception from Russia in Central, East, Central and, and Western Europe has evolved over time? Is Russia as big a threat if this war were to, you know, some sort of negotiated end to this war with Russia keeping whole swathes of Ukrainian territory. Do you think people have changed in their perception in in European capitals about the risk of that outcome? Does that make a uh, a further uh, Russian encroachment into uh, another neighbour? You know, is is that... likely? How do, how do you think that perception has evolved, if, if at all?
1: Well, you can see in uh, public opinion polls that people now do see much more of a threat from Russia. That's, you know, very distinct. I mean, obviously, some see it more than others do. Um, at the elite level, um, you know, I was um, really um, impressed by the shift in Germany and elite thinking. I mean, it was a real shock to the system. You know, we heard Olaf Scholz, the Chancellor, call this a Zeitenwender, yep. a turning point, but in the way that people thought about Russia and thought about European security and realising that there was no going back. But I think, you know, at a lot of the popular level, there's a kind of a feeling, I mean, again, that, well, this is very uh, distinct circumstances. Russia did this because of the expansion of NATO or Russia did this because, you know, pressure from the United States. I mean, a lot of this is obviously also Russian propaganda, but you know, it was kind of you know, sort of a feeling that, you know, somehow Russia wasn't accommodated enough and you still get a lot of that perspective, which again um, makes the uh, situation, uh, you know, really fragile and is also a source of great vulnerability because even if Russia didn't have the capacity for another large military operation um, against Ukraine for some time, we can see that the Russians building up its military, but Russia does have the capacity for a lot of other mischief you know, even before the uh, invasion of uh, Ukraine uh, and, uh, you know, before the annexation of Crimea, there was a lot of pressure, political pressure being put on uh, European countries, economic pressure, lots of covert action um, uh, operations, you know, thinking about the poisoning of, Litvinenko and Skripal and then assassinations like in the Tiergarten in Germany. Of course, that's all kind of been you know, somewhat more recent, but there was a lot of evidence already of Russian influence and, and, and other operations. And uh, obviously, um, a lot of pressure on former um, Soviet republics, including the Baltic states, which were forcibly reincorporated in the Soviet Union during World War II, but also to other you know, kind of countries you know, further afield. Uh, interference in elections, you know, for example. Russia's not going to go away as a malign actor under these circumstances under this current, um, you know, regime. So again, this is very specific to the Putin's Kremlin. If leadership matters a lot here, if this had been Gorbachev and Yeltsin, you know, we'd have seen, I think, you know, very much a different approach. I mean, a lot of this is the mindset of Vladimir Putin and the people around him. He still thinks in terms of spheres of influence. He still sort of um, has a, uh, an idea that the United States and others are out to get him. He sees the European, uh, you know, Union and uh, you know, other NATO countries as basically unimportant. That this is all about the United right. States and uh, Russia in a struggle. He doesn't see European uh, elites, uh, let alone European populations, having any agency and independent standing. So the only way really to shift this is, you know, for there being to be more of an assertive stance uh, by you know, European elites and European populations to make sure that Russia would not do this again. And we also have to get our own acts together. Basically, the cleavages um, in our own political systems, you know, the infighting in our political parties, our own, you know, societal divisions are also a great source of vulnerability because Putin will always you know, find some way, actually, as other adversaries will, and malign actors in our own system. We have plenty of our own homegrown malign actors will find ways of um, exploiting this. So, look, we've got a lot of work to do. And obviously, economic grievances, economic cleavages, inequalities, you know, have to be addressed because they are part of this, you know, kind of broader picture of vulnerability that, that we have. Not so, just in Ukraine, but, you know, elsewhere.
0: So, vulnerability. You mentioned Russia is not going away as a, as a sort of threat in Europe, but somebody might be coming back. So, segueing into the second second part of, of our discussion, and something maybe to push back a little. I, I've asked lots of people in capitals about what their contingency plan is if Donald Trump is re-elected, and none of them have said they're working on contingency plans. Which, you know, given how high probability that is. It just seems remarkable to me that Europeans, knowing that the security situation on their continent has changed, knowing that there is then a possibility with the return of Donald Trump that NATO, you know, America could pull out of NATO, that the vulnerability of European countries to that scenario is enormous, yet they're not planning for it, and at least not nobody I've spoken to. I don't know if you've heard uh, anything to the contrary, but what, what, are, what are your views about Europe's vulnerability in the event of Trump being re-elected?
1: Look, I think there's um, quite a lot of complexity to all of this, right, because, I mean, the United States remains a key ally for all, you know, most, you know, European countries, either bilaterally, not just through NATO um a bilateral, very key relationships, obviously, particularly here in Ireland and in you know, other the United Kingdom, you know, and elsewhere. So there's a kind of a reluctance to be, you know, so forthcoming and also forward on, you know, planning for the worst, because otherwise does that then, you know, suggest that you're not know, interested in uh, the longer-term relationship? It becomes very difficult to do that, you know, during Brexit. You know, the uh, U.S. government, and it's kind of weird for me as, you know, being somebody originally from the UK, we did have to have a lot of kind of discussion about what would happen, you know, if the UK came out. And um, I was of the view the UK would come out given you know, kind of the dynamics in the UK, but most, you know, other people were, you know, not sure that it would. And the UK government didn't even have any contingency planning, you know, for what yeah. would happen, you know, kind of if the referendum... Uh, came out with uh, with leave rather than remain, which is exactly where it planned to be. People, you know, tend to make all sorts of assumptions, and I think that that's part of it. Thinking, well, look, if we start to make these plans, does that mean that we're not being, you know, good allies and partners? But you know, I, I think no matter what happens um, in November of uh, 2024, even if you know the Biden administration gets kind of reelected, you know, the United um, you know states. Uh, ability to shoulder all of uh, the, the kind of burdens of European security should already be a question as, you know, as it has been and should have been for some time. It's already been made clear by people like Secretary Gates and, you know, back in the Obama administration, this, you know, being former Defense Secretary Gates who spanned, you know, two administrations, basically saying Europeans need to do more on their own security. Within NATO, the demand that uh, which was which is agreed upon by all of yeah. the NATO members at the Wells Summit under uh, Obama and under President Obama that uh, European countries would pay two percent of GDP uh, towards uh, their defence in, in support of their membership in the alliance. There was already recognising a uh, recognition uh, and, and steps made recognising the necessity of European uh, countries to step up on their own defence. I think you know the problem is that for. You know, far too long going back to the end of World War II, there's just been a kind of this sort of idea that the United States would take care of it, it still comes up in all the kind of questions and certainly since um, the Cold War reluctance to rec- to recognise that the circumstances have changed, that we're not in a, a situation of perpetual peace and prosperity as everybody assumed in the 1990s and that that you know, path has diverged this is not the 1990s anymore and 9-11 onwards you know certainly put us in you know a very different uh, a different place and you know the united states got bogged down in interventions in afghanistan and in iraq i mean a terrible decision you know made on the part of uh, the u.s government to to go into iraq you know the, the world changed really quite dramatically at the beginning of the 2000s and you know already then there were clear signs that Europe would have to step up more, but the idea was that everything was happening somewhere else. It was happening in the Middle East. It was happening in uh, Central Asia. It wasn't happening here at home. Everything was all fine in Europe. It's an assumption that the rest of us made as well. Yeah. You know, we weren't looking at you know, kind of uh, what Europeans you know, were doing beyond commitments that were made you know, with, with, with NATO for a very long time. It was kind of an assumption that we didn't have to worry about Europe. Europe yeah, NATO was brain dead. You know, yeah, and Europe could be a, a very different player thinking about long-term development. Well, that's just not the case. Because you know, in the case of Russia, Putin made a decision you know, to invade Ukraine on multiple occasions. When actually Russia moved into Georgia in 2008, that should have been a a very strong warning sign. You know, going back earlier when, you know, Russia turned off the gas uh, to Ukraine in 2006, when Russia started playing more hardball politics, we just kept trying to explain it away. Oh, it's because of this, oh, it's because of that. No, there was been a fundamental shift. And Russia showed that it was willing to use military power, you know, basically to... Resolve issues. You could go back even further to October 1993, when Yeltsin fired on the Russian Parliament, or 1994, when you know Russia basically moved into Chechnya, part of its own territory. That was the largest uh, military operation in European territory since World War II of its time—a major war on Russian uh, territory. We're already seeing, you know, different, you know, shifts in the use of force. Yugoslavia and, you know, the wars of the Yugoslav succession and, you know, Europe having to, you know, step up there. But, you know, there was at some point this kind of idea, well, this could either be resolved or it could be explained away in a lot of complacency. The Minsk, you know, agreements. Why, you know, Europe didn't have to really kind of take responsibility. Well, that's where we are now.
0: Will, Will Europe pay for that complacency? So that's a sort of specific question. Having worked with Donald Trump, what what are the chances that he will pull out of NATO, uh, either straight off the bat or over the course of a, a second
1: term? Well, look again. I think Europe is playing for that complacency by not stepping up in the time when it could have done. You know, in all honesty, um, I'm, I'm not talking about European, you know, members of NATO and Canada as well, frankly, because the Canadians, you know, were not really, you know doing too much on the military front and, you know, maybe they don't expect that they would be invaded by the United States, you know, but it's basically... But Canada, you know, also, you know, wants to be part of that kind of North Northern Atlantic and broader, you know, security arrangements and Canada wasn't really, you know, stepping up, you know, in any major way either. So that opportunity to step up, you know, in this all this preceding time, you know, going back from the Obama administration onwards, was there and, you know, wasn't taken again you know, out of expectations that somehow the U.S. wouldn't change. But all the signs were there that the U.S. position was changing on, you know, the responsibility for, um, you know, shouldering all the burdens in Europe. The United States was already talking about, you know, problems in the Middle East, in Afghanistan, you know, during, you know, the, um, uh, the uh, you know, situation there post 9-11, talking about the pivot to Asia. It was already being very clear that the United States was concerned about other security issues, so, you know, there's, there's that um, uh, issue. But obviously, when it came to Trump, Trump did not understand at all why the United States should be basically guaranteeing Europe's security if Europe didn't see the security threats and he, that he wanted to be. He's not wrong he's at not all. Wrong about he's that. asking exactly the right um, issues. Why should the United States be paying for your security if you don't think that Russia or X or Y is a threat? You know, so you know, kind of when he talked about you know Europe being worse than China, the EU that being, he meant that you know China isn't supposed to be an ally, and you know we're in competition with China economically, but you know politically and in the security field. But with Europe, Europe's supposed to be the an EU an ally, the competing with us on the economic stage and expecting us to you know to kind of pay for security. What's going on here? And that is not basically um, <laughs> an unfair question at all. It's not. It's completely justified. From um, an American sense, and you know, she can be pretty sure that um, Trump will not want to pay for European security. He, he already has made it very clear that he doesn't care about Ukraine. And you know, many Americans are saying, Why is the United States, you know, basically shouldering so much of the military burden? I mean, the economic burden. It's clear that yep. Europe is doing an awful lot on this. But why is it the United States is dealing with this? The United States didn't start the conflict in Ukraine. It is not, you know, a proxy war. Uh, certainly, you're not from the United States against Russia. Though obviously now it's becoming, you know, conflict uh, with Russia, and Russia itself has said that this is a proxy war against the United States in Ukraine and trying to get the United States out of Europe. And you know, the, the, the Russian rhetoric is making it very clear that's how they see it. And um, you know, people in the United States are asking, well, if it's so important for European security and European, so important for, for Europeans, why aren't they taking charge of it? So yes, I mean. It, There there, uh, would, I think, definitely be an impulse on the part of um, Trump to pull out of it pretty quickly. Now, at the congressional and Senate level, it's more complex. In fact, there's been efforts to make it very difficult for U.S. President, Ergo Trump, to pull out of NATO because there's a lot of support for NATO in um, Congress and in the Senate. So that support could erode you know, quite quickly if Europeans are not willing to you know, basically to step up.
0: So it's not completely a presidential uh, competence to, to make that t- decision? There not has as be... the
1: push has been recently because, I mean, again, you know, members of Congress and the Senate um, on both sides of the aisle have actually tried to plan ahead okay. to make it much more difficult. But that shouldn't be a reason for complacency because Europeans have already been put on notice. Look, it's been 100 years since you know, the American cavalry in 1918, you know, what well, basically rode in to liberate Paris. You can't expect, you know, for 100 years, United States cavalry to constantly be, you know, coming in one form or another when there's a when there's a major issue in, uh, in terms of Europe. It's, it's high time that you know European uh, players were doing more to address their own security. And U- and Ukraine is a European security issue. Europe uh, Ukrainian, you know, um, Maidan, you know, revolution. Uh, was uh, triggered off uh, because of you know the desire to associate with the European Union. You know it wasn't at that time anything to do with NATO or the you know United States. Ukraine is definitively part of Europe geographically. You know politically, economically, even if not formally in the you know security um, sphere until you know this particular juncture. And Putin is um, challenging all European borders. You know from you know, World War Two onwards. I mean, he's basically saying Ukraine shouldn't exist as a state. Well, if Ukraine shouldn't exist, why do most European states exist? When he said was, uh, Ukraine wasn't on the map, you know, X numbers of years ago, Germany, you know, wasn't on the map in its uh, current form. You know, Italy, Germany are both countries that you know, basically were created, uh, you know, late in the 19th century. Name, you know, the European country that um, hasn't had its borders changed, probably like Andorra because it's, you know, so, so small. All um, you know, countries have had changes of borders. Some by force, some by consent. You know, the, the, basically, what Putin is saying is, why shouldn't borders in Europe change? And that opens up a whole can of worms. We've certainly got plenty of, you know, still independence um, movements going on. Look, what's happening in Spain over, you know, the kind of questions about how uh, Sanchez creates a, a new government in alignment with, you know, the representatives of the Catalan National Party. that uh, you know, recently tried to secede from Spain, and just the the whole way that that is shaping Spanish politics. We've got plenty of problems within, you know, Europe that could easily be inflamed by, you know, Putin succeeding in perhaps not conquering all of Ukraine or, you know, having all of Ukraine come back into Russia's orbit, but certainly partitioning Ukraine. Uh,
0: on, on a second term for Donald Trump, I think there's a general sort of view that he wasn't as prepared for high office uh, in in his first term, and that in his second term he will be more, uh, in in foreign policy issues, that he'd be more uh, assertive, more um, aggressive. Um, Would you share that? And what would be your sort of major concern? Uh, Would it be this promise to end the war in Ukraine on day one, whatever that means? Um, Would relations with China become um, more confrontational or possibly less confrontational as you know he, he may not want uh, more confrontation with China but less
1: well there's going to be so many problems um, uh, by you know the kind of re-election of Trump you know one question would be the full future of U- US democracy because you know it's more likely to win through the electoral college than the popular vote so I mean again you know the United States is in full-on constitutional crisis at the moment you know successive minority governments. You know, a kind of question about whether the constitutional system, the electoral system is working. There's no faith in elections. This is a person who uh, perpetrated a coup. I mean, it might be a failed coup, but, you know, certainly um, instigated um, uh, a coup attempt on January 6th, tried to, you know, overturn the results of the election on numerous occasions, has 91, you know, criminal indictments uh, against them. have gone through two impeachment trials. I mean, you could go on and on and on. Uh, but you know, and, and could yet you know uh, still uh, uh, get re-elected, and is most likely to be the you know Republican candidate. I mean, this puts you know the United States in the realm of a whole bunch of you know frankly banana republic basket case countries here. I mean, is that going to be you know the leadership of the free world? You know, the the country that's kind of upholding democracy? Of course, it isn't. I mean, the whole question of United States leadership would already be, you know, right there on, on the table. But Why would it... any country, you know, want to you know, take the United um, States lead? But, you know, your question is about how aggressively would he, you know, um, uh, react? He'll, uh, or or he'll not, act... would it be more, well, you well, know, he'll react very aggressively um, domestically. There'll be constant, you know, fights with the states, you know, with, uh, you know, his efforts to, you know, get rid of opponents. Uh, that, would pro- that might actually distract him from you know, basically um, more uh, confrontation with China uh, that actually could have you know some impacts where we're more focused on domestic fighting, fighting the enemies within. He just recently said, you know, kind of in pretty stark terms, that the enemies within are worse than the enemies externally, which is the kind of thing you hear from Putin right. and you know and, and others, you know, kind of in uh, authoritarian systems. That's you know should be pretty shocking and sobering from anybody you know watching this. Uh, from the outside. But, you know, in terms of pulling out of NATO or trying to get you know the United States out of any entanglements where the United States has to step up monetarily or politically, absolutely, that's what one should expect.
0: And we're running out of time. One, one of our members put in a question, which I, might be a good one to ask uh, as a concluding question. Would any... Um, is it likely that any Republican uh, who's elected would pull out of the Paris Climate Accords?
1: I don't know about that, honestly, um, because... Um, you know it, it really sort of depends I, I think an awful lot on where the public mood is um, you know Trump um, wanted to kind of pull out uh, not just because of climate uh, change denial but also because of the where the the climate accords were structured in terms of all the kind of onus being on you know as he saw it on the United States you know bearing you know, the kind of the bulk of um, payments uh, so you know if there was some you know restructuring and, um, you know, kind of rethinking about what the cords and uh, the Paris accords entail. And if we come up with you know some different path forward after you know cop twenty eight, you know the current uh, discussions on climate, we might be in a we might be in a different place. I mean, there is a shift, you know kind of uh, now in the United States, a lot of the investments you know from the current administration in um, green technology and in you know kind of shifts that might be, if it's not Trump, you know, in the interest of, say, a Nikki Haley, you know, for example, to um, to continue. It really depends on, you know, where the where the mood is and whether there's an expectation of, again, whether the United States should be carrying the can, you know, as they say, for everything. I mean, from Trump's perspective, it was, you know, basically, everybody's trying to rip off the United States. Everybody's trying to make the United States pay for everything. If there was a kind of, a, there's a broader base burden sharing, you know, more of a, you know, kind of focus point about everyone's going to do all of this, you know, kind of together. Uh, I mean, that might be that might be different. It depends on, you know, how it's structured and how it's um, presented. I mean, the, look, the big risk for the United States is that, I mean, again, the United States is not seen as reliable in the slightest, that every administration that comes along just tries to, you know, undermine or, um, you know, basically get rid of all the commitments that the previous administration made. I mean, that's not a reliable partner for anyone. You know, and if it's that just kind of keeps on happening. I mean, that's really the kind of question right now that everyone has. How can we rely on the United States? And again, that's been something that's been an issue, you know, for some time now, which gets back again to European countries, individual and collectively, irrespective of what institutions they're part of, cannot be complacent. This is not a time for complacency in um, the transatlantic context, but also globally. I mean, we're in a series of rapidly evolving crises, some of which are existential. And, you know, we're not going to solve them by one, you know, huge chunk of humanity sitting it out and waiting for somebody else to take action. It's on all of us to take some action at this point.
0: And that's a perfect way, I think, to end it. Fiona, thanks so much for giving us your time. It's it's been a pleasure to welcome you back to the Institute again. Thank you.
1: Thanks so much. Thank you.